So hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Bettafelton, and we're joined today by Katia Singel. Katia will be reading to us from and talking about her memoir, From Chernobyl with Love, reporting from the ruins of the Soviet Union. Katia, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, anytime. So we're just going to jump right in. And could you please tell us a bit about the book? From Chernobyl with Love is a memoir about my time reporting in the former Soviet Union, just about less than a decade after the fall of the Soviet Union. But it's also, it's first I was in Latvia and the Baltics, and then I spent most of my time in Ukraine. And it's more, it's it's a bit of a coming of age story and a little bit of a romance and a little bit about what it's like being what, 22 years old and going to a place that if you grew up in the 1980s was kind of off limits and forbidden, you know, the Soviet Union and going over there and figuring out how to work in journalism in a place that's been closed off and has a very different idea of journalism. So it's kind of, it's a mix of a lot of things. There's adventure, there's love, there's beginnings of revolutions, and it's more, I didn't set out to write a memoir as much as I wanted to tell the stories of the people I met and the people I'd reported about and the way to tie it together was through me. So that's how the memoir part and the love story came in. I love that. Could we have our first reading, please? Yes. And I'm actually going to read from the very first part because it's just, I think, a, a good kind of setup. So it's chapter one, journalists invade former Soviet Union. Three things you shouldn't do in Chernobyl are visit, drink homebrew vodka, and fall in love. I did them all, not exactly in that order, and not in a single trip, which leads me to a fourth thing you shouldn't do, go back. But then I didn't know any of these things before I spent several weeks in a Ukrainian hospital, where even toilet paper was a luxury, before I met the Bulgarian doctor who insisted I needed a shot in the But that's how he said it, not me. And before that orange revolution, which really began after Gregory Gonzaga lost his head. First, I need to explain how I ended up in Chernobyl. The best place to start is Oakland, where I was born in the mid-1970s. Then fast forward through an overanalyzed California childhood, skip through an extremely awkward adolescence, continue beyond a sober and far too productive college career and stop at a water fountain in the San Diego Union Tribune building. The year is 1998, and newspapers are still being read. I was a college senior without a car, majoring in literature writing with a minor in history. I had stretched an internship at the paper into freelance work and wasn't really looking for anything more than a ride home when I spotted the flyer. Reporters needed in former USSR. Even without the all-capital heading, It would have caught my eye. You don't grow up during the tail end of the Cold War in a place like Berkeley with a name like Katya and not wonder about the Soviet Union. I think one of my aunts gave my sister, Anik, a Vladimir Lenin ABC book. It was red. The jobs were not in Moscow, but in the capitals of Latvia and Estonia, two countries I could safely say I knew nothing about. But the rhetoric was enticing. If you like the idea of covering infant democracy and whirlwind business, but cringe at the idea of living in a Breshnikov-era apartment building, don't apply. 
I took that as a challenge. I was tough enough, as the Podestine put it, to be among the first significant wave of ambitious English language journalists to invade Europe's wild northeastern corner. Brishnikov era apartment buildings be damned. Little did I know that those words, written with such authority, had been crafted by a guy not much older than me. Later, I would meet the author, Eric, Wisconsinite, who had a talent for rhetoric matched by no one I have ever known. He would later become a lawyer. He could go on and on in several languages on topics so indecipherable to me in English as they were in German or Russian. So, of course, I slept with him. When the only other option was a bed in a room lacking several walls during a Russian winter, you would share a bed with a verbose intellectual and several plastic Coke bottles filled with warm water as well. Nothing happened aside from sleep. I'm still waiting for him to run for office. Back up a bit to time time of dial-up internet, a time before there were programs that brought laptops to children in third world countries, a time when I was trying to figure out where and what Latvia was on a library computer. The first website I checked was the one listed on the job posting, the one for the newspaper doing the hiring, the English language Baltic Times, which covers the tiny Baltic countries of Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. Like so many websites back then, theirs was under construction. Luckily for me, my British stepfather would left his island homeland long before I entered the picture, but had yet to become an American citizen also remained loyal to the most British of publications, The Economist. It was within the pages of that hallowed magazine that he found articles on the Baltic and faxed them to me via a perpetual student friend who was crashing at the house of an old man down the street who owned a fax machine. Looking back, I think the man was probably in his early 50, but I was 21, and he limped, had white hair, and no longer worked. The descriptions I read of the Baltics were slightly intimidating a restless and in some cases rootless Russian population, leaders who tended toward nationalism, and a business model that seemed to include mafia involvement were just a few of the red flags being raised. But the job posting had hooked me, and the idea of working in a former Soviet outpost was only slightly more daunting than my other plan, which involved trying to get a writing job in the movie industry. Today, it may be hard to understand quite how rare a move this was, With email and the internet still in their infancy, knowledge of and communication with far-off countries was less common than it is now. Hadn't even been a decade since the fall of the Berlin Wall. And despite my name, I was not Russian. I was a California native who had spent the last four years in sunny, self-absorbed Southern California. I was tall and athletic with a perpetual smile. I rode my bike or rollerblades everywhere, worked as a waitress at a bakery restaurant, and went for runs on the beach. I lived on a street with a Spanish name that translated to Quiet Road and survived on frozen yogurt and bagels. The former USSR was about as far from Camino Tranquilo as it gets. And that's the first part I wanted to read. (laughs) Oh, how lovely. You know, I'm really curious and really in, in hearing you read it as well, there's this lovely narrative. It's really engaging and all those things. And I'm just really curious about, so as a journalist, your job is bringing news and narratives to like people around the world, no matter where we are. And I'm really curious about what inspired you to to write your own story and that decision that you said, you know what, I'm going from their story to, to mine. 
I think because in some ways I I couldn't separate them in a way. It was interesting. I was just looking back. Uh, a friend was asking me about something and I was like, I didn't remember it that clearly. And I'm like, oh, I remember what story I was writing at that time. And I looked up the article in there. And so for me, journalism has always been in writing such a part of my life that they almost intermingle. And as you find out in the book, actually, the, the man I end up falling in love with was a photographer who I met on an assignment. So it just all, it was hard to separate them in some ways. And one of my closest friends there was a trans, the woman who worked as my translator. And so for the stories and, and we'd go on these stories together that became almost all like adventures as well. Reaching the sites was almost as hard as, and securing the sources as the interviews and such. So I think in some ways it was when I first decided I wanted to write about Ukraine and the adventures there. And then it was like, well, I can't really separate my story from those stories. So it just kind of, I guess, was natural in some ways. I really like that because I think sometimes it's those human touches and those human stories that can connect us and bring everything to kind of life and give us that perspective. So I think it's quite lovely. Could we have another reading, please? Yes. The second one, because it is called From Chernobyl with Love, I thought I should read about. I think this is my first trip to Chernobyl. I made several trips to Chernobyl for stories. And so I'm just going to start in here with, I think I start pretty quickly with Anatoly is um, a man who's going to help me get to Chernobyl. Because at the time, now you have like tourist trips to Chernobyl and stuff. At the time, people didn't visit Chernobyl. It was very hard to get there. So although I start with this part about I discovered it wasn't that difficult to enter the exclusion zone that surrounded the plant. You just needed to know the right person. In my case, that person was Anatoly, a one-time documentary filmmaker who was from the region and thus had a special entrance pass. The zone was once home to two cities, Chernobyl and Pripat, and 74 villages. In addition to receiving large doses of radiation after the disaster, Those who lived in the zone were given shoddily constructed homes outside of it and passes that entitled them to special medical care and entrance back into the zone. I suppose accessing the zone had its advantages, especially when it came to bilking foreign journalists. Anatoly offered a number of services, translator, fixer, tour guide, for a price. Later, another fee was tacked on a contamination tax for the value his vehicle would lose by being taken into the exclusion zone. Luckily, he did not demand a similar fee for his own exposure. I didn't like the way he did business, but I didn't see another option. This was before Chernobyl tours became a thing. I couldn't go to the site of the world's worst nuclear disaster with just anyone, and Anatoly knew what he was doing. At least I thought he did. On the drive there, he told me that the road had been repaved twice since the 1986 disaster in an attempt to reduce radiation. That wasn't because it had seen a huge amount of traffic. Buses stopped going to the area in 1986. So did pretty much everyone else. There's no welcome sign announcing the entrance, just a military post where you hand over your documents. The soldier who took ours asked if I was scared. No, I lied. Good luck, he said. Seemed a strange thing to say. But then I suppose wanting to visit the zone was a strange thing to do. Living in it was even stranger and officially illegal, but that hadn't stopped a hardy troop of babushkas. Former residents of the area, they had hiked for miles with their belongings on their backs and slipped into the zone in the dark of night, 
Anatoly's late grandmother had been one of them, and he promised to introduce me to several others. Finding them was a challenge. From the single paved road that crosses the area, we saw only trees. An absence of street signs and people meant maps were useless and asking directions impossible. The side roads were unpaved and so overgrown with vegetation, it was a rare treat to actually spot a roof, wall, or shop sign. Trees sprouted in what were once entranceways, brambles peeked out from painless windows, and birds nested in cracked concrete stairwells. A modern community abandoned to time and nature, the place was quiet and creepy in a way an occupied village or empty countryside can never be. When I exited the car, Anatoly warned me to stay on the pavement. The grass and moss had higher levels of radiation, he said. After the accident, Chernobyl was closed off. The phone lines were cut and no one was allowed to enter or leave. Evacuations began three days after the accident did and continued for two weeks. Residents were told they would be able to return in a few days. They were never allowed back. But as time passed, several hundred former residents, mostly elderly, returned. Chernobyl was their home, and outside of it, they had never felt comfortable. It probably didn't help that the secrecy surrounding the accident meant outsiders treated them with a mixture of jealousy and fear, envying them their special status while at the same time shunning their presidents in case contamination was contagious. If you look carefully, you can spot signs of their existence, a shadowy figure or laundry hanging out to dry in a wheat field. Galina's door was open, her garden neat and orderly. She was one of the babushkas Anatoly introduced me to. She returned a year after the accident, when the home where she had been relocated broke in two during the spring thaw. In 1992, a fire almost destroyed her Chernobyl home. There were no firefighters to help her put it out. One winter, she spent a month without electricity. The summer I visited, there was no running water. A serious situation for those who are exposed to radiation and are advised to shower daily. At the time, a supply bus visited the zone twice a week. But in the beginning, residents were completely cut off. And they learned to rely on the land drinking milk from their cows, needing fish from the lakes and fruits and vegetables from their gardens. They did not seem bothered by the fact that radiation levels in dirt and marine animals were still 100 times more than normal 10 years after the accident. Like any good Ukrainian hostess, Galina did not wait long to offer me food. I tried the I'm not hungry tactic, knowing it wouldn't work and I would be obliged to eat the blintzes. She was proud that they were stuffed with fruit from her own garden. And I might have shared the sentiment had her garden not been on soil surrounding the world's worst nuclear disaster. Calculating that a babushka's displeasure lasts longer than the effects of radiation, I gingerly sliced into a blueberry blintz. As I ate, I tried not to think about the fact that radioactive elements are decreasing faster in undisturbed forested state lands than in private lands that are being farmed. The blintz was actually quite tasty. And I actually go on from there to talk about how the next woman forced me to drink her homebrewed vodka. <laughs> oh my goodness. I think what's so touching is that they're um they're there living on this destroyed, destructed land and um and making life and doing those things, you know, like welcoming people into their home. And what do you do when you welcome someone? You feed them and you you give them, you know, you share with them and it's such a special 
moment and such a gift to be able to give to someone. And I can imagine how like saying no, and you're thinking like, oh my gosh, radiation. But actually what you're saying no to them is like, no, I don't appreciate your hospitality. And I'm glad that you had that moment where you thought of like, which one is going to have the deadlier consequence. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And Ukrainian babushkas are some of the toughest people out there. So you say no to them was not an option. (laughs) So it seems like you chose wisely. (laughs) Yes, I I think so. (laughs) So the last question I get to ask is, what was the process for you of compiling the memoir? What was that like? And then I'm curious if there's something that you learned about yourself or yourself as a writer or reporting while you were writing and working on the book. I'm trying to remember now the process. I I actually, I think it was, I, because it's, my second so I'd finished another book and I just sat down to I didn't know if I was going to write fiction nonfiction, or whatever and I just sat down to write the first thing that came to me and it was actually that first chapter came to me just like the what are things you shouldn't do and these things and it just kind of started flowing and then after that I decided I looked back over some of my old articles and I decided, well, I'm going to tell it through my time in Ukraine and use the love story to kind of pull everything together, kind of that thread. But I want to tell all the different things that happened while I was there. So I looked back through all the articles I'd written um, to help me remember what happened where and, and some of the big things, because it was the lead up to a lot of things happened politically while I was there because poor Ukraine tends to have a lot happening a lot of the time. And so it was before the Orange Revolution there. And so there was a lead up to that where a journalist went missing and the government was accused of his murder and things like that. And so I kind of use that in my different visits to Chernobyl as well to kind of pull you along to know what's going on in my life, as well as what's going on in the country. And so there's these periods of hope. And then there's also periods of disappointment, both in the country and in my own life. So it kind of worked together nicely that way, I think. (laughs) Memoir always seems like it's such a vulnerable, it's such a vulnerable act and position that you put yourself in because you're exploring your own life and and giving that to us and just kind of like, here it is. and, And this is the story. And this is my story. And it seems like such a personal thing. And I think that is why I'm curious, is there anything that you might have learned about yourself through the whole, like the the writing and the process and also the distance between, you know, living it and writing it? Yeah, sorry, I forgot the second part of that question. Glad you repeated it. Anything I learned about myself? Uh, I think every time I'm writing, I, I definitely learn something about myself. I think for me, it was a great time, but it was also a difficult time. So looking back, I think I learned how I use humor as a way to kind of deal with things when they're difficult. I guess also it reminded me also how much my journalism and my work is a part of my life, like how those all integrate. And I think for me, this book originally came out 2000, late 2019, and we're just releasing the paperback this spring. And so I went back for that and did an update. And that was the hardest for me, actually, because of what's going on now. I update about Svieta, the translator I work with, who's still there, um, and some other people and such. And so that actually 
was the hardest too, because I felt like, well, the memoir, it was okay. Cause it was about me and other people, but now that everyone's paying attention to Ukraine and such awful things are happening there, it felt more exploitative that the second part in a way, the original book didn't. And, and I'm not, don't feel I'm being exploitative or anything. I just wanted to update people of what's happening there, but because of the way things are now, that actually was probably the most difficult for me. That's mm. interesting because, like, to me, I guess as a reader who's never been there, it feels like you're giving us this lens into the um, kind of this heart into this conflict. And sometimes when we read the newspaper articles, and I hate to say this to you because you are a journalist, but <laughs> sometimes when you, you know, when you're reading newspaper articles and you're you're reading and going, oh, this this horrible thing is happening, and you know, you might be touched or moved, and it's fleeting, and then because of, of in the memoir, we have that very human story. And there's something with those connections that seems like when you read it in that way, you're thinking, oh, and you pause for longer and you reflect. And then sometimes you're inspired to act. So it's interesting that you're worried about it being exploitative, where I'm thinking as a reader, we're going, wow, thankfully, you know, someone is giving us a way in so that we can, you know, see and feel these things that we should be seeing and, and feeling. Yeah, no, I I think you're totally right. It's through the individual stories that we relate to something. And I see that too. I think it's because like Sviet is closer to me and I've always done that. I've used the individual stories to get people to help. And I guess I hadn't, when I first wrote the book, people didn't need help. Well, my friends didn't need help in Ukraine necessarily the way they do now. So I think it's, it's just, it's weird to be so it's just different, I think. Um, so, but yeah, I do hope people get a better understanding of what it was like before too. Cause I think people forget, oh, now we're focused on Ukraine, but they don't realize all the past Ukraine has gone through in history, you know, from Soviet, post-Soviet, and even before that different occupations and all those things and kind of get a better picture of the culture, society and that, and then understand get to know some of the people and some of those people are are still there today some some have been able to get out and some are still there fighting or um just trying to survive so yeah i i do hope people get that knowledge wow could we have our final reading please yes but also and i know that all sounded very serious and it is and i hate to say humor when we're talking something so serious but there is I think humor is an important way for people to get through difficult times. And especially there's a post-Soviet humor and there's a tough humor that Ukrainians have that I, I think helps them. So this last reading is going to be when I went down um, coal mine in eastern Ukraine. And I'm going to kind of start us in the middle of it. It was probably the scariest thing I've ever done in my life to this day. Um, I didn't really realize I was claustrophobic until <laughs> I mean, I'm not super, super claustrophobic, but when you get in and you're in this tight space and you can't escape, it, it was a little, I'm going to start with Misha was kind of one of our guides there. And I think if I mention other names, Svieta was the translator and good friend I worked with. I learned uh, some at the time, most people in Ukraine still, at least in Kiev, spoke Russian. He went to Western Ukraine. They spoke Ukrainian. So I, I learned some Russian, but I was never fluent enough to conduct interviews or anything like that. Okay. Misha reminded me of what I imagined a Depression-era labor organizer would have been. 
He wore nice suits and his hair gelled up to the side. Misha never said I couldn't go down a mine. He just never said I could. The local mine owners and managers he introduced me to were more blunt. Women are not allowed below ground. They are bad luck. There did not seem to be an abundance of luck to begin with. I didn't think any potential additional bad luck would be noticed. I kept asking, and they kept answering, Niet. The last guy to turn me down was a former miner who now owned his own mine. He was the one who served cognac at breakfast. He was an old pal of Misha's, and he was happy to show us everything in his mine except the mine itself. I saw the bunnies he raised to pay his miners. I'm not sure what the conversion rate of rubles to bunnies was, but at least his miners were given something they could cook or at least cuddle. I saw the maps of the area that outlined the various mines and their depths. I was served a lot of dehydrated fish and toasted more strangers and strange things in two days than I had in the previous two years. I wasn't a fan of the food or the fanfare and kept asking to see the real thing, the work that went on underground. He served me more cognac. I pretended to take a sip with each toast, but by the sixth one, I could not even pretend to keep up. After a day of freezing cold, the warm dinner food was making me sleepy, and I was tired of fighting to remain sober. I just wanted to go to bed. Strangely, the food was having the opposite effect on our mine operator. Suddenly, he was asking if I really wanted to go down a mine. The answer, if I was being honest, was no. I wanted to go to bed. But I had the reputation of my sex to defend. So I nodded my head and followed him out into the cold, dark night. As we headed toward the supply shed, I noticed several forms lurking in the dark. Miners having just gotten off their ships, their faces smudged with coal, the whites of their eyes glowing with wisdom and suspicion like those of a cat. Then I caught the mine owner looking at me, testing me for fear, smiling at my discomfort. I took a headlamp from a cubbyhole in the shed and declared it fit after placing it on my head. He smiled at my naivete. Turn it on, he said in Russian. I tried. It didn't work. I tried another. It also didn't work. The fourth offered a dim and sporadic glow that he declared, good enough. Then he slung a mask over my shoulder that looked like it belonged on the set of a World War II movie and handed me a water canteen and lunch container. We didn't need any of these, I hoped. We did need special clothes, thick layers that would keep us warm and keep the coal dust from ruining our regular clothes. Sveta and I piled on oversized ratty men sweaters and pants and pulled caps over our hair until we looked like street urchins from a Dickens tale. Instead of socks, we were given portranki, kerchief-like cloth foot wraps to wrap around our feet before slipping them into large rubber boots. Sveta and Misha tried to show me how to wrap my feet, but my sock wrappings kept coming undone, so Misha finally just did them for me. As he wrapped my feet, he looked at me for what I figured were signs of wavering, as if I would suddenly declare, okay, nice joke, I don't really want to go down a mine, let's go back and sleep. I think deep down we both wished I would say as much. I didn't utter a word besides, pasiba, thank you. We were the only ones on the bus that took us to the mine entrance. The next shift change wasn't for some time, so we enjoyed our short ride in quiet. We didn't have to walk far once we got off the bus, and all too soon we were cramming ourselves into a rickety little ride, rather like the kind you come across in an amusement park. As we traveled ever so slowly down below, 
I tried to ignore the fear starting in the pit of my stomach and climbing toward my chest. I reached out and touched the damp earthen walls that closed in tight around our little train, cocooning us in what seemed an endless tunnel, taking us farther and farther from light, air, and life. I held onto the back of Sieta's sweater, recalling all the wire reports that regularly came in about mining deaths. Back in the newsroom, there was a morbid weekly game of betting when the next beheading would occur in the Middle East and how many mining deaths there would be in Ukraine. That is how common they were. As if to prolong the torture, our little cart crept along slowly, threatening to stop every hundred feet or so. My knees were crammed into my face and the surrounding walls were wet with I didn't know what. The farther we went down, the more scared I became, realizing that as slow as it was getting down, it would be twice as slow getting back up should we need to escape. And I knew there were many reasons why we might need to escape. I'll end it there. Wow. <laughs> it's funny. I've never thought about going down into a mine. And even like where my grandmother had a house in Pennsylvania, there were mine. It was like an old mining like you know community. Never once thought like, what is it like down there? It was just like they're closed and that's it. I love that you wanted to change your mind and didn't and and still went down there and he wanted you to change your mind <laughs> and you still didn't and you did it. Yeah, I think some of that was being what, 24, 25. <laughs> so young, like you don't know any better and just get yourself into things. And it was important for the writing of the story. I was writing an article about minors and I've always felt as a journalist, it is important to really describe something and understand you have to experience it because the minors themselves can't, it's it's normal to them. It's every day. So they won't be able to translate it for people like me, the readers who haven't been down a mine. So I needed to see what what was scary for me, those kind of things, that's what the readers would relate to. So I did feel it was important for journalism. And then once they kept saying women can't go down mines, it really got me like, uh, what do you mean women can't go? So I really needed to. But yeah, in the end, I was like, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> but I also but, love your thing like, well, gosh, you know, you already had bad luck. So um, I don't think your luck can get any worse by me going down there. And I was so surprised that that rationale would work on them. And they wouldn't be like, you know what? Like any bad thing that happened, they could now blame this on. We knew we were right. But you're like, no, no. How, how much worse going to get now? <laughs> exactly. How can it get worse? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So where can we buy from Chernobyl with love? Pretty much anywhere. Books are sold, of course. Amazon local bookstores, if your local bookstore doesn't have it, just ask them to order it because it is through Ingram, which is um, a regular supplier. So and University of Nebraska Press, my publisher sells it as well. So if you kind of put it in online, you should be able to find it. But we love supporting bookstores, independent bookstores. So please, if you can um, and are able, go to one of them and just ask them to order it and they should be able to do that for you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the readings, for being my guest. And I really appreciate it. It was a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun to read to you. Oh, wonderful. Anytime.